At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, <laughs> I could really use Current. <laughs> I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Hi, this is Bennett Kelly. Thanks for listening to Cyberlaw and Business Report. Before you take a recess to hear the latest internet law news and commentary, you are hereby ordered to download the WebmasterRadio.fm mobile app for iPhone and Android. Okay, maybe not ordered, but why not? You can listen live to my show and all our show hosts every day on our live stream or download past episodes with ease. So download the WebmasterRadio.fm mobile app in the iTunes store or in the Google Play store. It's an open and shut case. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning, and welcome to Cyber Law and Business Report. This is Bennett Kelly talking to you live from the Internet Law Center's broadcast center here in sunny Santa Monica, California, in the heart of Silicon Beach. Uh, we have another great show for you today. We're going to be starting off, we're going to have a return guest, one of our, our favorite um, guests, uh, a, Hoya, a fellow Rhode Islander and Hoya lawyer. Um, we have Robert Ellis Smith. He is the um, publisher of the Privacy Journal, and um, which is one of the, the oldest, if uh, not the oldest, um, journal on uh, law journal on privacy. And now uh, he's going. To be, we're going to be talking today about some significant developments on the privacy front um, involving mobile privacy. And um, you may have seen the news that the California Attorney General has filed a lawsuit against Delta for the failure of its um, mobile app to include a privacy policy. And um, and then we'll also be talking about um, the FTC is looking into mobile issues um, as it relates to the Children's Online Privacy Act. So mobile commerce is big, and um, it's um, we've seen it, it grow to the extent that um, pe- amount of time people spend on mobile apps now is about three is getting close to the amount of time people spend on TV, um, almost three quarters of the amount of time. Of um, in terms of you know, comparative, so um, without further ado, Robert, are you with us? Yes, good to join you. And you write Privacy Journal is the uh, original newsletter 
publication on privacy. So you are it, and um, that's a, that's a, this, that definitely uh, shows a sign of foresight. Um, how long before you had competition? Oh, only about two years, actually. But privacy was quite different then. We were worried about huge databases and all the information they were keeping on people. The fact that credit reports were totally secret and foreign to people, and uh, the fact that there weren't many protections at all for uh, even pre-internet gathering of information. Well, um, and it's kind of like the old joke of the um, small town with one lawyer and who struggled, and then the second lawyer moved to town and um, business boomed. But <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, Robert, it's it's been a, an interesting year in the privacy front. Um, a lot of discussion, but really nothing major happening. But um, so this lawsuit is really kind of came out of the blue um, to an extent. The earlier in the year, Attorney General Harris in California, you announced that um, you know, she, she interpreted the California um, privacy law to apply to mobile apps and got um, an agreement by you know, mo most of the mo mobile app developers to adhere to um, and include privacy statements with the mobile apps. And so um, it's surprising, how, you know, given how visible she's been, that there actually was someone who um, you know, ran afoul, and now we have this lawsuit with Delta um, Airlines over their failure to include a privacy statement with their mobile app. And more significantly, liability under this law only attaches after um, 30 days after you received a notice from the Attorney General. So you can you can violate the law. You're only liable if you once you get notified by the Attorney General that you're violating the law. And even then, Delta didn't comply. So. Is this an unusual, like, one-off case, or is this part of a bigger problem? Well, it's a first. It's, it certainly is significant on two points, that it involves uh, apps. Uh, we've had a couple of cop cases at the federal level involving apps, but it's, it's all new territory. But California is unique in requiring a privacy policy on the part of anybody that runs an electronic uh, service or maintains a website. The focus has been on the Federal Trade Commission, which uh, requires that if you have a uh, privacy policy, it must be accurate and you have to abide by it. And if you fail to live up to it, that's a deceptive practice under the Fair Trade Act. So here we have a law that requires you to have a privacy policy. And I believe that is unusual throughout the country, that uh, nowhere else do I, do I know of where you have to have a privacy policy. There are some requirements that you have to have a privacy officer somebody who's a liaison, somebody who takes complaints, somebody who knows what the requirements are. But uh, Delta got burned here simply because they didn't do what is just simply good business sense to have a privacy policy when you're uh, creating an app. Well, it, it, it's a double <laughs> not doing what would be good business sense. You know, one, not having a policy to begin with, but two, you're getting a, a letter from the Attorney General saying you have 30 days to correct and failing to do so. It just... Um, it, it seems astonishing. My understanding is Delta has since published a, a, a statement <coughs> for its mobile apps, but um, there's been some criticism of that as not being entirely accurate. Yeah, I'm not aware of that, but there is a danger, you know, that 30-day rule for a company that if they put together a privacy policy in 30 days, they may commit themselves to too much or to too little. If they commit themselves to too little, they're going to lose customers to competitors who have a more vigorous privacy policy. If they commit themselves to too much, they're going to get burned if they're not able to keep that promise uh, 
and and abide by it, and that would be a federal violation as well as a state violation. Just um, to put things in context, the law we're referring to is the California Online Privacy Protection Act of 2003, and um, the main requirements are that you can conspicuously post the privacy policy on your website with a you know a hyperlink um, with the word "privacy" written in caps or greater size than the surrounding text. Um, you must disclose the categories of pers personally identifiable information that you collect, um, the categories that you share, and uh, if there's a process to review or make changes to your personally identifiable information, and how um, consumers will be notified of the changes to the policy and its effective date. So it's not that far-reaching, except to the extent that it applies to anyone collecting information from California. And so by definition... Um, practically every website in the country is subject to this law because if if, you, if you're on the internet, you're very more, statistically you're more likely than not collecting information from California. Yeah, that's true. It is a specific law; it does make its requirements, and uh, we'll see how this goes. I I think uh, California will make it stick because their law is quite unique. We, we've seen now in the past 30 years that California leads the way in. Uh, privacy regulation uh, online and, and offline as well. They were the first to uh, require that if you had a breach of information through hacking or through negligence, uh, you had to tell people who were the subject of the breach that uh, their information was uh, was vulnerable and had been exposed. And there was an uh, international uh, movement to imitate that, in fact. Just about every state now has what are called security breach laws. Mm -hmm. The federal government hasn't quite gotten there yet, but they have incorporated it in some of their other requirements. All medical institutions must notify uh, individuals of security breaches, and the Europeans have uh, have grafted that onto their more strict privacy laws as well. Uh, 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 many states, including California, require that you notify uh, the Attorney General or some other government official as well. And it's good, it's good that you mentioned that because you know, when we had um, was it, um, Clear Choice, the, the data breach, the huge data breach they had several years ago, um, the only reason we knew about that was because it was reported under the California law. That's right. And, That's right. Uh, and so we... You know, prior to that law, God knows you know, what type of breaches may have occurred that we didn't know about. But just because of laws like these, that we're actually finding out about data breaches. Um, that was the intent, and it's worked. Yeah. Now, uh, um, no, a good question is why hasn't the federal Congress gotten along on well, this one? This is I think there's a, there have been a number of efforts to, um, since given that now we have over 40 state data breach laws. There's been a, an effort to kind of make it a national standard, but at the same time harmonize so right. that the requirements are uniform across the board. And it just hasn't gotten out of, um, gotten very far, because you know, it's usually been attached to some larger piece of legislation. Yeah, well, nothing's gotten very far in the Congress. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, that, I mean, that's that's one reason for it. Yeah, there are a lot of short-distance runners in a, in a, running a long-distance race these days there, it seems. Right. But, you know, you usually get a lot of complaints from government, from corporations uh, about inconsistency in state laws, and they always run to Congress to uh, try to get Congress to uh, adapt the um, common denominator. That really hasn't happened this much here, and I'm surprised, because each of these laws requires a different form of uh, notice. It, it is triggered by a different number of people who might be involved in the breach, a different official to notify, 
different information you have to give individuals. Uh, do, is, is electronic notice okay? Is uh, just a statement of a breach okay? Or do you have to go further into detail about what actually happened? Some states allow the company to declare that uh, there won't really be a, a significant impact uh, because of the breach. So uh, companies have to cope with all of this and, and comply with these laws in slightly different ways. So this is one case where I can see um, a rationale for federal uniformity, but there hasn't been a big push on it. I guess corporations are dealing with this. And certainly there have been enough breaches, and we've learned that through these laws. So companies are having to comply uh, with this because uh, there aren't many companies that have not suffered a security breach of their uh, electronic data in the last five to ten years. No, I mean, you uh, go through the list. Um, there's a website, actually, where um, that, that kind of collects all the different notices that have been submitted, and if you go through it, it's um, <coughs> excuse me, I have a tickle today. Um, if you go through it, and it's like a who's who of uh, um, who's online. And um, what was interesting about you mentioning the different states that have it, um, you know, Texas has uh, um, I think one of the, the lowest denominators in terms of what would trigger it. I think even a single record breach could trigger a disclosure obligation. And I think the average cost of you know just complying with um these type of disclosures is like in the neighborhood of a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars. And yeah, uh so it was interesting that the, the, the single um breach in taxes can trigger um a requirement. What do what are your thoughts of what what is the appropriate standard you think? Oh, for lack of anything else, I'll go for 500. If 500 okay. persons are suspected of being affected and there's a, a, a let's say, a likelihood that there'll be negative consequences, um, then um, I would think the notice would, would kick in both to individuals and to uh, the Attorney General. The state of Pennsylvania requires that you notify the news media uh, when this occurs. Um, the, the changes to the uh, federal uh, medical privacy law require the health and Human Services Department to publish a list of breaches, so people can go to that site. Uh, that's uh, Health and Human Services (HHS) and uh, check out whether uh, the uh, medical institution you are using uh, has suffered a breach over the years. Um, and it's the Privacy Protection, what is it, Privacy Rights Clearinghouse in San Diego that uh, is publishing a list of breaches in, in other sectors besides uh, health services. So we now, should use these laws and then find out where the breaches are occurring. I actually am th I'm glad you pointed that out, Robert, because I went to the privacyclearinghouse.org and um, clearly I had um, too much time on my hands because I, I spent some time. <laughs> I, I looked at, I, I figured out what's, what's, uh, what's digestible. So I looked at... Um, all the data breaches for this one six-month period, and just classified them as either being government, um, medical, education, brick-and-mortar online, um, e-commerce. And what struck me was that the largest category of breaches was um, government, and then um, next behind them was um, basically, in a close, um, or more or less, very close, all bunched up for second place was medical, educational, and um, those two. And yeah. with um, then brick and mortar slightly behind, and e-commerce last. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, 
I think, well, I'm not sure why that is, but uh, it's ironic that many of these state laws do not cover the governmental sector. <laughs> they they uh, they cover private businesses. Uh, so by the way, example, in Texas, Texas, that law had that uh, huge data breach uh, in which there are tax records were accessed. Yeah. Uh, I don't recall whether I'm assuming it became public. I don't know if that's just because they announced there, or was that a do that they have a duty to do so? Well, there might be some duties by regulation, and there is pressure, I think, on government to disclose that sort of thing. People do find out about it, so uh, I, now, I think there are ways that, that it can be detected. Now, you know, uh, with a, the theft of a laptop computer from somebody going through the airport or traveling in a rental car somewhere uh, would be included in a security breach, and we've had lots and lots of those cases. I think what, what, what's apparent is that... Uh, People are ripping off those devices not for the data because they have no idea what's in it, and if the company's responsible at all, it's encrypted data. But anyway, they're looking for the hardware. But it does expose people to a certain vulnerability, and why companies even permit personal data to be downloaded onto a uh, portable device and, and left the uh, company premises, I don't know. I don't think there's any need for that. I don't think that uh, that's the kind of data that ought to be massaged while you're sitting in an airplane seat. No, I, I, I fully understand that point. And you make a good point. You know, the, my analysis w was very rudimentary. You know, the number of breaches um, is has some limited value. But um, if there are 50 breaches at educational institutions that involve 10 records and one e-commerce breach that involves 15 million records, you know, it's hard to say that there's 15 times the number of data breach. You know, suggest that the da danger is 15 times greater in educational institutions if, if when you have something of that magnitude. And um, you know, I didn't. My analysis didn't really take take into account the size of the breaches involved. Right, and it's really important what kind of information is is lost. Um, social security numbers, if lost, can be very crucial to people, and that can be the basis for identity fraud. It hasn't happened a whole lot with security breaches, the, those who are doing identity fraud are finding the social security numbers elsewhere. But that's much more damaging to people, even even psychically damaging, if no uh, negative consequences ever come from it, but much more damaging than the release of a, a name or address or, I might argue, even a, a, a grade in a, in a college course. Well, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head because it's often what you see is that there's um, – um, identity thefts are, are using, or identity thieves are, are using um, people to go in and, and doctors' offices as temps, so they can get, you know, social security number and some other medical information, so they can, you know, which is this is a treasure trove of information at these doctors' offices, and they're they're stealing the information, you're not in a cyber way, just in the old-fashioned way of, you know, being present at the office and. Uh, but then it, it just it allows them to convert this to use online. That's very true. And uh, university personnel offices and registrars have been a, a prime source uh, as well for that, that kind of information. To you know, you corrupt somebody on on the inside uh, to get the information. Do you, do you think there should be a background check requirement for people in, who involved in um, personal data or? Well, of course, there are in some cases. Uh, I'm not a fan of background checks. I think that they do nothing but get companies into uh, trouble. The, I think all the studies show that when people are carefully 
supervise once they're hired, then you do cut down on this sort of behavior. And wherever the company is uh, uh, organized in such a way so that employees get the notion that the boss is working hard too and has a lot at stake in the company, then uh, this kind of insider corruption decreases quite a bit. Um, a lot of employers now are using credit reports, uh, mainly for employees who handle money, but also for those who handle personal data. But I, too, don't think that's right. Uh, many states are now prohibiting it. I don't think they're probative at all. I think they are unfair in many ways to minority uh, applicants. So I wouldn't suggest that companies use credit reports either in the hiring process. Credit reports are intended to determine whether you're uh, eligible for credit, not for employment or for insurance even. Well, we're going to take a short break so Robert can investigate my background and figure out why it was he agreed to be on the show. But, right. <laughs> but uh, we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report. Um, we'll be right back with Robert Ellis Smith. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Oh, yeah. My day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use CertifiedKnowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. Hi, I'm Brett Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. Aim clear. This is how you sell with social. Have you tried to do CPA conversions using social PPC and failed? <laughs> You're not alone. These days, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube require true specialists to dominate. Aim Clear, the agency, brings definitive psychographic targeting, bleeding edge creative, and killer content amplification to the social advertising table. Aim Clear, this is how you sell with social. Aim Clear, this is how you sell with social. Building better search engine rankings takes the right formula. Tracking those rankings is super simple. All you need is authoritylabs.com. Authority Labs uses automated daily rank tracking tools to monitor your site's performance or leverage their API to build your own tools. No matter what animal-labeled algorithms affect your ranking, you should be using Authority Labs. Unlimited users for no additional cost and white labeling can help keep your clients updated and save countless hours of creating reports. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report. Um, I'm back here with Robert Ellis Smith, the um, pioneering um, journalist and um, lawyer who's um, produced, publishes the Privacy Journal, the very first privacy journal of its kind in the U.S. And um, he's been a good friend of the show, and we're glad to have him back. Now, Robert, we, we were talking earlier about the use of background checks, um, you know, as and whether they should be required for screening. And um, now, it, it would seem that that, that also would, could create a, a risk as well, because then, um, you know, once you create the background checking, that's more data you have that you know someone's able to get access to. 
Yeah, it's very true. Among the cases that the Federal Trade Commission brought this year was one against a company that does background checks, and uh, they just had an allergy to keeping stuff accurate. They didn't think it was important, didn't do it, and when people would complain to get the information corrected, which is their right under Federal Fair Credit Reporting Act, this company would just ignore them. So that's the other side of the coin here. First, those background checks usually are notoriously inaccurate. But a second area that employers got to be aware of is there's been documentation over 30 years that they disproportionately affect minority applicants and women. And so the a company may find themselves in a civil rights suit if they use uh, background checks without using them wisely. I, I think that uh, this shortcut in getting background checks has been due to what I call this conspiracy of silence. And I think we all know it. When a bad employee leaves, part of the deal usually is, well, we won't tell the rest of the world what a scumbag you are. And so when new employers call and say we've got an application from this or that person, usually there's a conspiracy of silence. And the personnel office that had just fired the individual won't tell that this person is not a good risk and not a good employee. I think uh, companies are just afraid of, of retaliatory lawsuits based on libel, slander, um, uh, uh, employment discrimination, and, and the like. And you know they shouldn't be. If they if all they have to do is say they wouldn't hire the person back, and they're not they're not going to get sued for that because that's an opinion. And uh, they shouldn't just pretend that the individual is let go for innocent reasons. And if if companies did that, if they were honest in telling new employers why a person was let go, you wouldn't need as many of these background check companies, these these national companies that now think that huge computer databases are, are going to be the answer and will tell them immediately about an employee uh, employee suitability. You know, a lot of hiring, a lot of people now move from place to place, so you need a national company if you're going to do employment checks. Well, it's impossible for one single company to know all the local nuances and to keep track of um, uh, either employment experience at one place or uh, criminal activity, too. Some states prohibit the disclosure of certain arrest records, certain conviction records. Others uh, say they have to expire after a certain number of years. Even the Fair Credit Reporting Act says after seven years, you got to delete that negative information. So background checks now in a time when people cross state lines to get employment, I think, are of very limited value. Now, um, going back to the mobile app issue, the, the California law is unique. And um, and Attorney General Harris is unique in in terms of not only saying you know do we have this privacy law but we're going to apply it in the mobile setting and she's made that a priority. Um, but given the the dynamics of it, the fact that you know you're only liable if you if you screwed up for after getting notice, uh, is is it likely that we we will we will see pretty quick compliance in this area and that this you know this Delta lawsuit would will be a rarity, or do you think um, this is going to be something that we'll, we'll see resistance from the, the mobile industry? Well, I think the California approach is not a bad transition uh, model, and if it, it, it appears that companies are ignoring the law until they get caught, then I, can, I think the California legislature will easily delete that section. They're always ready to pass uh, privacy uh, favorable legislation, so that won't be a problem. It might be a problem in other states, but I don't think this is a bad way to go as a transition. 
Um, and any company that can't come into compliance after 30 days probably deserves to get the book thrown at them and to, and to get penalties for this. Yeah, I mean, it just—I mean, it seems like a systematic failure on Delta's part. I mean, from a PR perspective, from a legal perspective, um, what, what message does that send? It means I think that companies creating apps are not aware that uh, the, this involves privacy of personal information, and that companies who do that have to comply with certain privacy requirements. Now, I think that's the reason I. Uh, most companies post privacy policies on their websites because they know that um, that's just good business. Their trade associations have told them that, and the Federal Trade Commission sort of implies that they should do that. But I think that the problem in Delta's case was that many companies probably are not aware that that same protection applies to apps. Now, um, in, you know, it's kind of transitioning to the the, the federal view and um in terms of you know collecting this information um do you think that this should be the FTC should be should be stepping in and and doing more in in the mobile app area yes and they are uh, one of the trends that i noticed in 2012 it was cumulative and not as noticeable was a stiffening of the penalties um and the sanctions that the federal trade commission came up with in this calendar year and a couple of those uh, compliance app uh, uh, cases, uh, violations, involve uh, the use of apps. So, yes, the Federal Trade Commission uh, did a study of this and did an open workshop on all of this. They are particularly concerned that apps are collecting information on children, which is a violation of the federal law on children's privacy if the kids are 13 years or younger. And companies uh, originally seemed to be aware of that. Now they're ignoring that. And the Federal Communications, excuse me, Federal Trade Commission seems particularly worried that uh, the protections in federal law that were intended to uh, uh, disallow collection of personal information online about kids is being uh, disregarded. And you can, I think, expect that they will propose to Congress uh, a stiffening of that law. The Federal Trade Commission will probably do what it can to stiffen its own regulations under that law. That seems to be the focus not only uh, uh, privacy abuses in mobile apps, but also uh, especially in the collection of information about kids. You know, it took a while. This was not the FTC, but the FCC. It took a while to uh, prohibit robocalls to uh, uh, mobile phones. Uh, now that has been done, and people, I hope, have noticed a diminution of the automated calls that they get. Uh, so that took a while. That was the first uh, step uh, of privacy protections uh, in the new mobile era. And the second one uh, is going to be making sure that anybody that provides an app uh, does provide the standard protections for individuals' privacy. That essentially is uh, no uh, gratuitous uh, collection of information that's not absolutely necessary. Notification to individuals about what information is collected, uh, notice to them that they can see that information, they can uh, ask to have it amended, and uh, that Lastly, that anybody providing an app has an obligation to make sure it has adequate security procedures. All of those things have been kind of traditional privacy protections over the last 30 years, and why not include them in apps? And that's what we're going to start to see. And I think you know, the FTC articulates this in kind of succinctly as privacy by design. 
Yeah, a, a concept that comes from Canada, actually. But uh, oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was invented by the Privacy Commissioner of Ontario, Anne Kavukian, but it's now getting accepted uh, worldwide. Essentially, it's a uh, different name for an old principle that uh, was pretty clear: that uh, when when you design a computer system, a new database, you better put privacy into it from the design stage and take care of that. That right. was not the case. It used to be an afterthought after people built the system. So, right. um, yes, the Federal Trade Commission now has endorsed this concept that companies ought to start uh, designing in privacy when they build new databases. Now, given that, um, you know, the fact that there's a name for this that we're talking about, um, you know, the younger kids today um, as digital natives who are um, more comfortable, have greater, higher usage rates, of um, computer and particularly in the um, in the um, PDA uh, arena, you know they're very much involved at a higher rate. And um, so, given that the, that data, and given the the kind of the failure and the kind of the vacuum that exists in terms of privacy when it comes to mobile apps, is it fair to say that we can assume that there there really is widespread? Um, collection of information from those those under 13 just because of the statistics? Yes, I think so. More so because of the Federal Trade Commission did a study and an investigation and found exactly that. But what we're also seeing, of course, is a very relaxed attitude towards providing information on the Internet by the late teens and the 20s uh, crowd. They, they really don't think much about putting up uh, very embarrassing information on uh, Facebook posts and and the like, and and they don't really understand the consequences. Uh, many people think that means that the uh, younger people don't care about privacy. I think that it means uh, number one that uh, they care about a certain type of privacy. We, they certainly don't want that information available to their parents, and their employers, and their school teachers. But they they think that it is protected. Uh, they don't really realize that they are posting something that is really semi-public. So that's one thing. I think we've just got to get this new generation to understand and to appreciate. Uh, Facebook really has sold them a bill of goods by implying to them that the information they post up there is shared only with a few select friends whom they have already uh, selected. Um, one survey showed that if you're over 55, you're bound to have a password that is longer, more sophisticated, and more secure. If you're in your 20s and your 30s, that's not a big priority. You just come up with your birth date or your initials or something. Or something one, two, really three, four, five, five six. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, people, young people are doing that. Now, that's one basic thing they can do, which is not going to sacrifice any of their freedom on the Internet, and that is to come up with more secure passwords and to use it each time. Many kids you know, like to bypass the password to inactivate it. Now, you mentioned Facebook and um you know, so this fall there were several big elections. One, obviously, um, the most important one being the the one between uh, Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. But there was just an election over Facebook's changes to its privacy policy, and uh, it was and the result was uh, a, a huge collective yawn. It seems um, there was very low turnout. Um, didn't seem to be much interest in the uh, Facebook population over that. And um, so even though people overwhelmingly voted against making the changes, um, since less than um, 0.07% 
of the billion Facebook users voted, um, which was far below what was required to make the vote mandatory, you know, the fact that it, it was an overwhelming rejection at the polls has no meaning. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, it's an experiment in uh, online social media democracy, so maybe we shouldn't expect too much in the first couple of go-arounds. Uh, I think anything that attracts the attention of almost a million people in this era of so much distraction and so many competing uh, stimuli for us is not a bad record. So we shall see. The, the overwhelming uh, sentiment that the, uh, for the pro-privacy position I think is very impressive. And uh, it, it shows clearly that people want more disclosure of policies by Facebook and less disclosure of their personal information by Facebook. I mean, not that Facebook would, would phrase it this way in, in a press release. It seems that the um, you know the the story here is um, you know Facebook privacy privacy policy overwhelmingly rejected at polls, and um, but given but the other headline is since you know, the such little turnout that uh, Facebook privacy policy is approved. Is what the changes to the policy are approved? Yeah. So, so that the headline is um, we lost, but we won. <laughs> yeah. Well, Facebook wanted to get rid of the voting after inventing it. I thought it was a novel concept, and they ought to stick with it and, for a few years and see how it works. But, uh, well, but among among the changes was to remove blocking of spam. I, I can't imagine anybody on Facebook would endorse that. Um, maybe they would, but uh, but uh, on this vote. Um, you know, Facebook has now removed the requirement that they submit anything to a vote. Yes, that's right. It was it, well, it was sub subjected to a lot of cynicism online. Maybe that's the reason they did. Uh, maybe uh, the results didn't please them. I don't know what. But uh, uh, I don't know. I was getting tired of those calls from Mark Zuckerberg that said, "You know, I, I approved this ad." Yeah. Okay. I haven't been privileged to to get those. But I think uh, Zuckerberg still has a or whoever's making the calls on that company still has the most influence over young people in this country and over privacy practices in this country. So that's where the action is. That's where the concentration should be in the vast collection of information by social media sites and its exposure uh, to a public far beyond what people realize. Uh, I don't know whether folks realize that a lot of employers now are demanding that you present your Facebook password in order to apply for work at that company. We've got right. now four, four states, including California, now prohibit that practice. Yes, and uh, just just recently signed into law. Um, yes. I believe it will go into effect in January. Um, so if you, you actually still can do it for a few more days in, here in California. Um, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to um, finish up with Robert, and um, we'll be back after these messages. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. 
Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. If you're like most digital marketers, you've probably got conversion rate optimization at the top of your list of priorities for 2013. Conversion rate optimization is one of the most effective ways to increase revenue and grow profits. You can master your website conversion optimization skills at Conversion Conference San Francisco 2013. Conversion Conference San Francisco 2013 is the only digital marketing conference entirely focused on getting more web visitors through your conversion funnel. Learn how to create persuasive content, design landing pages that trigger your visitors to action, and convert blog readers into customers. Conversion Conference San Francisco 2013, April 15th to the 17th, is quickly selling out. Register with discount code WMFM for $100 off your registration. Sign up today for Conversion Conference San Francisco 2013 at conversionconference.com. That's conversionconference.com. Johnson, what's this mantis I keep hearing about? Do we need to call an exterminator? No, sir. Moby Mantis is our new SMS marketing tool. SM what? SMS, text messaging. Moby Mantis lets us communicate directly with our customers in real time. We can send promos, coupons. It even lets our customers market for us by sharing offers with their friends online. It's been great for business. Hmm, sounds expensive. Actually, I sign us up for an extended free trial. It hasn't cost us a dime. Good work, Johnson. I guess the only thing we'll be exterminating is the competition. To get your free extended trial of Moby Mantis, text RADIO to 21691. That's RADIO to 21691 for Moby Mantis. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back um, this is Bennett Kelly. You're listening to Cyber Law and Biz Report. I want to thank you for joining us. Um, we're talking again with Robert Ellis Smith. He is a Hoya lawyer, Georgetown grad, and uh, he is uh, also f- was famous for um, a, a stunt when he was at Harvard, in which everyone thought the President Kennedy was attending the Harvard Yale football game, and uh, he um, he was the decoy. And so for a moment, he, everyone was giving him hail to the chief. <laughs> That's right. You can go to the Wikipedia page, look up the Harvard video game, and you'll see a write-up about it. That, that still, I think, that I, I get a laugh every time I, we, we talk about that. Now, um, in terms of you know, privacy this year, um, in, in terms of uh, you know, what do you see as the, what were the top stories from your perspective this year? Well, let me give you... Let me divide it in two. One, what happened and what will happen. First, what will happen, I think, is the emergence of the use of drones, unmanned um, uh, aircraft, all over our cities in America. The Federal Aviation Administration has announced that it doesn't think that any permit is required to do this. So anybody who's got the wherewithal can put up a drone and, I guess, equip them with uh, cameras or listening devices or, even worse, weapons. So we'd certainly got to have some permitting process, I think, right. to make sure that anybody putting up a drone is doing it responsibly. And you have a second phase of that where law enforcement now has fallen in love with drones. The, we've you know, read a lot about them and their use overseas in combat, but now uh, 
as always happens when the military develops a technology that people like, they bring it over here for a domestic application. And police departments have fallen all over themselves to get a drone up there. Um, and uh, some police departments say, well, that is to help our first responders to know where to go in the case of a crisis like the one yesterday in Portland, for instance. But um, others will admit, no, the reason they're up there is to gather intelligence about people and to do it without a warrant or any court supervision. So I think that's the thing to watch, the use of drones over American airspace in peacetime. What happened was I just wrote a story about the cumulative effect of the Federal Trade Commission's penalties on, on companies. Uh, there's been a new vigor um, at the Federal Trade Commission thanks to its uh, new personnel, both as the chair and the head of their uh, consumer protection division. Um, and they are coming down heavy on companies, and they are going after the biggies too, MySpace, uh, Facebook, uh, Google, um, and others. Um, so they're not just going after the small ones, although they are going after the small ones as well. And these are largely uh, based on three things, security breaches that should have been prevented, uh, privacy policies that are not abided by, um, and uh, thirdly, uh, uh, a very negligent uh, failure to comply with the Fair Credit Report, Reporting Act or other laws that uh, are supposed to protect the privacy of individuals. So I say uh, two cheers for the Federal Trade Commission in 2012. I actually spoke at a, a, a workshop at a, um, Santa Clara University on the, the FTC enforcement, and um, one of the cases was was Twitter, which um, you know became subject of an FTC investigation after then Senator Barack Obama's um, Twitter account was hacked, and at that time you could. Um, you could access Twitter um, by you could try any number of password combinations without being locked out. So you could be on one million thirty seventh and three, you know, well, however number, you know, how large you want to imagine, and and still be trying um, to you know, figure out the password. And then you realize it was, uh, you know, Michelle one or whatever, and then boom, you're in. Um, mm -hmm. You know, two or three days later, and 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 that was you know, one of the things the FTC nailed them for. Mm -hmm. Now, um, well, you had asked earlier about the privacy hero of uh, 2012. I'll give you a couple answers to that one too. Sure. We've got a few seconds. One, one is uh, uh, the the judge in England, uh, Judge uh, Levison who has been uh, handling this probe into the uh, hacking scandal and the abuses of privacy by the London press, uh, Judge uh, Brian Levison. I, th I think he's done a marvelous job in, in, uh, in his findings, also appreciating the importance of privacy. And uh, maybe another, an unusual one, Brady Quinn, the uh, Kansas City Chiefs quarterback, uh, who uh, last week after um, one of his teammates uh, uh, committed suicide after uh, killing his his wife, his his girlfriend. Said, uh, "We live in a society of social networks with Twitter pages and Facebook, and that's fine. But we have contact with our work associates, our family, our friends, and it seems like half the time we're more preoccupied with the, our phone and other things going on instead of the actual relationships that we have right in front of us. Hopefully, people can learn from this." and try to actually help if someone is battling something deeper on the inside than what they are revealing on a day-to-day -day basis. 
I, I, I think in a few short words, he's really given us something to contemplate for the new year. Oh, definitely. And those, that's very, very eloquently spoken, too. Um, so those are definitely um, some of the big stories for 2012. And um, we'll be back next week when we're going to be talking about the heroes and zeros of the year. But very quickly, I want to cover just two other things with you. Um, You've written a lot about Block Island, and uh, you're you're part of the, the conservation board there. Um, how, how was Black Island badly hurt at all by Hurricane Sandy? It depends on the context, you know. Uh, compared to communities in uh, the tri-state area, no, not at all. But we lost a couple of roads that are going to be expensive to replace, but I guess they'll be replaced by the tourist uh, uh, season. Uh, and roads are, you know, easy to replace compared to homes. Uh, there are no structures really in the floodplain in Block Island. I think that's always been a uh, asset of the community. So there were no near, there were no threats to people at all. The Rhode Island coastline, you know, did suffer mainly people's second homes, of course, and that's a, a less of a problem than people's primary residences. But I would say Rhode Island ca- lost 50 to 100 homes that were washed out to sea. And it was very reminiscent of the 1954 and the 1938 hurricanes here. The 54 was was that Hurricane Carol? It was one in which, which I experienced. I was in downtown Providence, and I was trapped in a office building uh, uh, when I was a young kid uh, after a uh, dental appointment. And uh, as a kid, I thought it was a pretty exciting experience, even though I was isolated <laughs> from my spirit. I was isolated from my family for about six hours with no telephone or anything. But I saw the waters come in and go up to about eight feet and and the waters recede, taking with them all sorts of uh, merchandise from stores and paperwork and the like, and automobiles, taking them all out to sea. So it was a memorable experience. We now have in Providence a hurricane uh, dam that can rise and fall with the need, and it proved to be uh, very effective this year. I would say this year was its first real big test. And yeah, it, it's interesting. Um, the danger of that is, though, it, it does spread the, it makes the water higher elsewhere. But I do recall it as a kid being downtown in Providence and seeing the high water marks for the was it 38 and uh, 1954 hurricanes, and just finding it unfathomable. Yes, well, it is. I mean, uh, when a major city like that can be brought to its knees, and uh, I recall there were a lot of um, stores in sub basements or on the first floor, they were all wiped out, and that's why there was this big impetus to uh, build a hurricane uh, barrier. But it's just something the people of Rhode Island uh, have gotten used to. The advantage is we we get a long uh, warning period, and when the water cools, of course, the hurricane loses some of its punch. But next time you get a chance, take a look at the east coast of the United States, and you'll see that there are three or four funnels for these storms and the Narragansett Bay in Rhode Island is one. You can see it's a direct route straight up there. This storm uh, made a left turn radically before it hit land, something has been explained to me and I can't quite explain it to myself, but uh, (laughs) that's what saved uh, New England and really hammered New Jersey here. And uh, the very last before I let you go, um, if people want to get more information about you and the Privacy Journal, where should they go? Well, first of all, I have a book called The Magnetism of Islands, which tries to explain why they're very special to us, and people can see that on uh, Kindle and, and order it as an electronic book. Um, I have published a book called Block Island Trivia, which is available on Amazon. That's a, a quiz book about uh, this small tourist island off the coast of Rhode Island. Do you have a house? But people, pardon me? Do you have a house there? 
Yes, I do. Yeah, uh, safely above uh, sea level, I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> and uh, everything on Block Island that's going to blow away is pretty much blown away because twice a year we get uh, nor'easters that uh, pack a wall almost to the extent of a hurricane. So uh, that's a good thing about it that uh, people think are pretty well nailed down, and there are not a whole lot of trees and very few weak trees uh, out there. But I'd like people to visit uh, privacyjournal.net, which is uh, our web uh, site, and we have a Q&A there where people can ask questions about their own privacy and order a sample copy of the newsletter if they like. That's privacyjournal.net. And um, you're, you're talking and talking about Block Island, and uh, I've actually I've been there. It's a beautiful island. And uh, what struck me, I was just doing some research on it. And uh, Brian Williams, the NBC news anchor, uh, has referred to it as heaven on earth. Yes, he's in my book because he uh, tells some anecdotes about it. Uh, yes, he's visited regularly there. His mother-in-law had a house there until recently. So it's a beautiful place to visit. Robert, I want to thank you um, for being such a great friend of the show and uh, have a very happy holiday to you. And um, thank you for joining us today. And um, everyone, Robert Ellis Smith, a um, publisher of the Privacy Journal and uh, the Hoya lawyer and distinguished Rhode Islander. Um, thank you again. So this is Bennett Kelly. Um, you've been listening to Cyber Law and Business Report. I want to thank you once again for joining us. And court is adjourned, um, but we'll see you next week. So have a safe week, and happy holidays, everyone. Happy Hanukkah, everyone. And um, we will see you next week here on webmasterradio.fm. Be sure to download our um, mobile app so you can take us to lunch or wherever it is you're going. But you can listen to us nonetheless. Take care. Bye-bye. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.